episode 210210, Breaking Kayfabe with Valdron and Barry. Uh, Barry, as far as I have been able to uh, detect, we are Frankie Seacrest's favorite podcast. What do you think? <laughs> we, Frankie, thank By God. By God, he's in our corner. He is, Frankie is our corner man. He's our cut man. He's got, yes, cut Frankie me, is cut me in our corner. <laughs> yes, he is, Jeff. So on a today's edition of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowden and Barry, I will tell you that we are going to be doing a multi-episode look. First time we've ever done that. At the year 1997, I've mentioned in the past that I uh, obtained the 1997 Wrestling Observer Yearbook chock full of good intel and stuff to discuss. So on today's episode, Barry, I've said it before, what are we if we are nothing? We're givers. We are givers. We are givers. So today, for you, the listener, completely non-Patreon related, free of charge. Wow. Two matches, Barry. And two matches that were in the Wrestling Observer end of the year top 10 list for match of the year. One that came in at number six. The other one that came in at number two. Oh, Barry, these are two kick-ass matches, and pretty much for different reasons, wouldn't you say? Did you say we're not charging for these, Jeff? Uh, completely free of charge. Wow. Right. Except for Lou. Lou's getting like, I don't know, uh, $600 yeah. an episode, something like that. Something like that. So, But we are going to be talking today, let me just tell you, we are first going to the 6th of May, 1997, the... Finals of the best of Super Juniors tournament in New Japan, Koji Kanemoto versus El Samurai. And then next, oh, Barry, I like to put it this way. We're walking the King's Road. Mm. Mitsuhara Musawa versus Kenta Kobashi. Can you ever go wrong with those two guys? Absolutely not. And we are going to go 100% right with these guys today, Jeff. Check. But as if that wasn't enough. Because what? we are, as I said, our givers. We have what? more, Barry. We have more. What? We will be speaking today. Thank you, Nick Massey. To I am DeMounty. Jacques Rougeau will be joining us, Barry, to discuss his career. Great segment. You texted me during the interview and said, I really like this guy. And he's super engaging, super nice. Answers some, loves talking a little wrestling history. Just so you know. So no one sits there and goes, ooh, I wonder if he's going to talk about the locker room thing with Dynamite Kid. No! No, we're not talking about that, because quite frankly, that's been beaten to death at least six times. In other words, it was beaten to death. They then dragged the body back up, beat it one more time. Six times it was beaten to death. We're not talking about that. We're talking old school Montreal, old school uh, Southeastern, old school Florida. We dragged the intel out of Jacques. And he had a fun time. And Barry talked to Jacques about good-looking women in Quebec. You know what? So, again, as you pointed out, you can look anywhere online and you'll get Jacques' thoughts on the Dynamite Kid and British Bulldog and all the shit that went down between them. I don't think anybody has ever asked him about the beautiful women of Montreal, Quebec. So, yes, we have cornered the market on that, Jeff. You don't get this in just any podcast. No. No, no, no. And you don't even get this in any Arcadian podcast. That's right. True. That's right. I said True. it. True. And you know why I said that? You know why I said that? Because Frankie Seacrest would say it for me. Thank you, Frankie. So <laughs> what do you say we go to our first of two matches of the week? 
So, Barry, the first match that we're going to talk about comes from May 6, 1997. Oh, Barry, it's the finals of the best of the Super Juniors. We are talking Koji Kanemoto versus El Samurai. Before you tell me your thoughts, I got to tell you, when I first found this match, uh, as I mentioned, uh, looking through uh, Dave Meltzer's 97 Wrestling Observer yearbook, and I saw this and I was like, wow, I'm really not super familiar with either one of these two guys. And then I watched the match and I rewatched it today before we started taping the show. And as I was watching the match, I said to myself, man, if Barry fucking Rose doesn't love this match, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know Barry fucking Rose. That's there all I got to go. say because there is so much in this match that is the stuff that Barry and I love. Barry, tell the folks what you thought about this match. I, I think you know me fairly well. <laughs> so I, I think you, as we were just talking off air about, you know, the nail and, and the, the hitting of the head <laughs> of the nail and all that. You're right. And I'll, let me tell you a little story about this match, too. So when I was living in New York City with the soon-to-be ex-Mrs. Rose. Uh, manager or server? I was a manager. At okay. This yeah, I'd been a manager. And uh, and I should say, when I say soon-to-be ex-Mrs. Rose, I'm literally waiting for the papers to arrive in my mailbox. Wait a minute. You're breaking kayfabe on uh, your uh, status there. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we'll go off topic just to, for a moment. But <laughs> as we always, as I always do, you're actually, you're the one that keeps us on track. Uh, but yes, the, uh, and I got it. So this is what's interesting. We, uh, and, and I'll break kayfabe. I'll be very honest about this. When we split, it was amicable. We were friendly. She was like, I'll help you move. I should have taken that as a sign. And <laughs> exactly. And she was like, you know, whatever you need. And she was, she called me, I think, every day for the week after I moved out. And then at some point within probably a month, we weren't really on the best of terms. And there wasn't a lot of arguing and things like that, but we weren't, it, there was just this real deep tension. And I think I understood it from her side. It wasn't from my side. I think I understood it that for some people it's easier. It's, you know, to, to say goodbye to somebody and to say goodbye to Ozzy. That's another big thing that she had to go through. You know, that was a child essentially leaving. I think it was easier for her to deal with it with anger and that's speculation, but that's what I felt. And, uh, we've been, you know, we, we, we communicate all the time, usually via text, but a couple of weeks ago I got the, what would appear to be the final papers that I had to sign for the divorce and I mailed them back. And then I, apparently that's it. You know, the, the, the waiting period, I think it was 90 days after filing all that's been done. And coincidentally at the same time, my ex has been calling and we're having really great friendly conversations generally around our kids and things like that, which is the way it should be. But at the same time, there's not a lot of anger or any anger in her voice, which I'm able to pick up. So long story short, Soon to be ex Mrs. Rose could be the ex Mrs. Rose as of today. I haven't checked the mail. That being said, Jeff, wait you do minute. know me. Yes. Wait a minute. So it's interesting you you've sort of couched it in those terms because okay. uh, when I think of uh, the end of my relationship with the second Mrs. Bowdrin, uh, whose name was Kelly, much like my daughter's, when we first split, there was a lot of anger. Sure. And um, there was a lot of not speaking to one another. Uh, I, although I was renting a room, 
continued to uh, financially assist my, uh, at that point, soon-to-be ex-wife. I was giving her money. And, um, you know, pretty much about half my paycheck, I think, uh, so that she could continue to pay the bills and stuff like that. Well, at some point, I went, I think I got a car, and I went and got a um, a place of my own. Uh, I, I got out of the room that I was renting. And uh, I got myself my own place. So, of course, my finances had become somewhat more limited as to what I could give her. So I remember I went in to because she was still work. She worked in the same building as me, Barry. That was, oh, yeah, that was not a lot of fun. But so I went to go in and give her something. And so I gave her what was essentially it was like I went from giving her 400 bucks a month to 200 just arbitrarily. I'm going to give an example like that. Sure. And so she kind of gave me a big rash of shit about it. Oh, really? You know, uh, so you can uh, go out with your, uh, your, your chicky or, so, you know, I don't know. So some kind of comment, like, I don't think we've ever used the word chicky here on the air before, Barry. No. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so I, I was just like, I kind of just shook my head and I kind of walked out and she told me later that one of the women that she worked with looked at her and goes, what are you doing? And she goes, what? And she goes, what are you doing? You're giving him grief because he's giving you money? And he, she goes, well, you know, he's not giving me as much as he did uh, uh, a few months ago. And the woman looked at her and goes, do you know how many women separate from their husbands or get divorced from their husbands and get nothing? You're getting something from him. You should appreciate the fact that he's continuing to support you in some respects because, and I, I'm not looking for the... Uh, Barry Horowitz pat on the back here, uh, which, of course, Barry Horowitz is going to be at the CWF Legends Fan Fest in Lutz, Florida coming up, Barry, but that's another story. A quick plug for you there. But I know a lot of women who have gotten separated and divorced, and the husband completely fucked them by not giving them one iota. And these are women with children, by the way. And, oh, no, I uh, didn't get a chance to give you money uh, this weekend. You know, that I always thought was kind of shitty. But anyway, so... The funny thing was, much like what you just described, as the months went on and we got further and further away from when we lived together, the relationship actually began to slowly improve. And we actually, she called me because she got a traffic ticket and she said, do you know uh, anybody, a lawyer that can help me out with this traffic ticket? So I said, yeah, why don't you uh, meet me and we'll have lunch somewhere. And we went and had lunch at an alehouse or something. And we actually sat and started talking with one another. And she told me, she said, you know, I realize that this marriage failing is not completely on you. I, of course, played a part in the marriage not succeeding and not ultimately working. And I remember thinking, wow, if we had had this conversation six to eight months ago, we might still be married, you know, because that was part of our problem was we had just essentially stopped communicating with one sure. another at all. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm not saying that if you and your wife started community, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about my uh, relationship specifically. But it's funny how the further away you get, and then once you get to that moment where those papers have to be signed and you realize it's over, Johnny, uh, that, uh, you know, you kind of look back and you think about, ah, oh, let's see, what could I have done differently? Now, I say that there are certainly people out there that are like, I couldn't wait to get away from her. I couldn't wait to get away from him. And there are, I understand there are those kind of relationships, but there are also those, you know, that you sit and you look back and you, especially like yourself, Barry, where you and Jennifer have children together and you sit there and you go, oh, you know, 
maybe uh, maybe I should have done this or I could have made more effort to do that. Maybe she sits there and thinks maybe I could have done this. Maybe I could have, uh, you know, sort of let him get away with doing this and, and, you know, not made such a big deal of it. You know, it's it's hindsight is always 2020, you know, it is. And, and a lot of things that you just said are absolutely correct in the sense that it is uh, it, it can be very difficult to to have those conversations, to initiate those conversations Absolutely. and restart them if if you cut them off. So if you haven't communicated, it is a tough thing. In our case, too, Jeff, let this sink in. Jennifer and I started dating. And, and also, we should say, there's no other podcast in the world that will be talking about a Japanese match from 24 years ago <laughs> that will go straight into marital discourse. I don't believe there's any podcast anywhere that offers that. So we have that going for us. But, but with that, you know, it, I'll always go back to, and this is through no fault. And certainly, you know, what you just said and, and whether it was you or what Kelly said, what Kelly said, there are, there are no innocent parties in a divorce. Everybody is guilty of in some form of not making it work. But I also, I look at this aspect if I was to have changed and Jennifer and I, I should say also, we had a conversation three or four years before the podcast started. So maybe it's five or six years ago at this stage, but we had had a conversation and we were communicating and it really did wonders for our relationship and it was great, but I do feel she wanted certain things from me and certain behaviors from me that if I was to do that, I wouldn't be me. It's like I, I wasn't going to pretend to be somebody or something else because that's what she was looking for. That's what she wanted after all these years together. And it, it just, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be real. It wouldn't be accurate. And it, it's very hard, especially at our age to change who no, we that's, are. That's, yeah. And no, I don't want Yeah. And I don't want it. Absolutely true. There, there I, are, I've, you know, I've sat and talked with my daughter about this before. Uh, when she was getting ready to get married. And I said, you know, I said, in marriage, uh, you know, marriage is like a second job. Or if you have a second job, it's like a third job because you have to work at it. And one of the things I told my daughter is in a marriage, first of all, marital arguments, you have to fight fair. You you can't sit there and, you know, in the middle of you're arguing about uh, the fact that you didn't like what you had for dinner. You can't sit there and say, Oh, you remember that? That reminds me of that shit that happened six months ago when yep. you did this. You can't do that. That's not that's not fair fighting. And the other thing you have to do is you have to pick your spots when you stand your ground and really say, nope, this is something that I'm not willing to either give up or I'm not willing to allow you to do. Uh, and, you know, you can't do that in every single marital uh, discourse or conversation. You know, and I'm going to give an example. Okay. Like my first wife, she who shall not be named, she hated the fact that I was a wrestling fan. Okay. Uh, and, and the funny thing is, is I really wasn't anywhere near as big a wrestling fan as I uh, was in marriage number two. Okay. I mean, I used to, you know, like watch uh, the UWF and the, and the world class shows. And she'd be like, oh, we got to watch this again. And I, and I sit there and think, <laughs> you know, like, really? Yeah. I'm not watching like, you know, 10 hours of wrestling a week. You know, I, I'm watching a couple of wrestling programs a week and that's really about it. And I, I'm trying to think if I'd started getting the, yeah, I'd, I'd started getting the wrestling observer by then maybe, 
but, you know, it wasn't like I was doing all this in-depth research on wrestling. I was watching a couple programs for a week, and she hated the fact that I had that. You know, and she hated the fact that, okay, here, here's probably a better example. I had my first dog, okay? My dog, Lady, at that point was like 14, 15 years old, okay? So she was an older dog. And when we got married, my mom said to me, look, if, you know, when you move out of the house, you have to take lady with you because, uh, you know, like it's your dog and she's going to want to know where you are. So I brought lady with me. And in hindsight, I wish I hadn't because my first wife did not like my dog at the time. Uh, she did, she had never owned a dog. And so she was not mean to the dog, but she kind of let us know that she wasn't a big dog fan, which is actually pretty ironic because later on when I talked to her, she would, you know, she had her own dog and she, much like you, when you got Ozzy, all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, okay, now I understand what all the fuss was about. Exactly. Yeah. And so that, that, but the, the fact that I knew she didn't like my dog was a, that was like one of those, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waver on this. You're not going to have me get rid of the fucking dog. Yeah. And, and, you know, so that's an example of what I mean. Uh, There's certain things that, you know, like, oh, uh, well, you want me to, uh, you know, do this. Uh, okay, I can do that. And, you know, uh, you know, but don't ask me to give up the dog. You know, there's there's different sort of uh, stuff, as I told my daughter, that you can stand your ground on. And then there's other stuff where you have to sit there and go, is this really worth my aggravation? Uh, fine, go ahead. Do that. You know, you know what I mean? There are. And, you, you know, pick and choose your spots. You're right. And, you know, exactly. it. it and it, it was, you know, for us too, I think part of it was we were, and I'll always go back to this. When I, when I got together with my wife, we celebrated her 23rd birthday together. She is now, uh, she'll be 50 at her next birthday. You know what I mean? So you're now talking you're about to peak, if she finds out you're dropping her. Damn age, right. <laughs> now I'll be in trouble. Just when I finally was making, you know, it's a uh, little bit now you're going to get a phone call. Yeah. You motherfucker. But it was, uh, you know, look, she went through a lot of growth and uh, she was, a, you know, less than a year, a half a year out of college. She was 22 years old, half a year out of college. I was already in my, I was 30. I, you know, I had lived a life. I had done, you know, it's a, she was a very, she was a younger person and she, she came into her own over the last 26 and 27 years. And she went from a, a kid out of college to an adult. And I think, as you know, as you can attest to, and probably Sweet Lou, as men, we we really stop growing at a certain time. There's there's not going to be a lot more growth in our lives. And and I think that with women, I think you do see that. And I think that's what a lot we all the stuff that we did when we were younger. You know, there was that one season we went to, I think, you know, 39 or 40 Nick home games and we paid for those tickets. And you know, a few years later, Zach is born and she yeah, doesn't want no to do more money for the tickets, right? There you go. And she, right. Cause now it's for college funds. But for me, it's, you know, I, I tried it like I'm still alive. I still want to go to games. So there was a lot, and that's just one example, but there was a lot of, and she is, I think she has always been more responsible than I have. She is more pragmatic than I am. And in some ways she's more sensible than I am as well. So we're just different people, but end result, uh, we are communicating. We had a conversation this morning at eight thirty that was friendly, and it was uh, it was great because it it takes away any sort of uh, stress that I have over that you know how everything went down and how everything ended. 
And it's important, especially when you do have kids, that the kids know that mom and dad, while they don't see eye to eye, and guess what? A lot of people don't see eye to eye. They're still respectful of each other's feelings and thoughts. And that's where we're at right now. And I will just end this particular segment with this. John Lennon in his song, Woman, said, Woman, I know you understand the little child inside of your man. Wow. Good segment, guys. But um, what about that Kanemoto versus El Samurai match? So anyway, Barry, you've had a chance to watch this match. What do you think of this match? Do I know my friend Barry Rose? You do. This is, I would say, as good as it's going to get for this style of wrestling. And this is a style that I absolutely love. So when I was living in New York City, there was a Japanese video and magazine store that was in Midtown. And once a week, maybe once every two weeks, I would make a trek there. I would pay my $3 rental fee and I would get Japanese TV. And this was during this era. That was for me was probably 96 to like two right before Zach was born. Once Zach was born in 2001, I wasn't doing anything with tapes any longer. But for that period of, you know, three or four years, I would make my trek once, you know, twice a month down there and I would get these videotapes. And this was one of the matches because I was following the whole Super Junior tournament. So when I saw this match, I was just blown away. Like this is an incredible match. And this is these are two guys that I don't think I don't think history remembers them the same way that say they do a Liger or, you know, or some of the other junior heavyweights that were over in Japan, whether it's Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit. But you got to admit, Jeff, Samurai and Kanemoto are just literally phenomenal. And there's there's a similarity in style. But at the same time, these are two different styles. You've got Samurai who's working this Japanese, almost lucha style. And then you've got Kanemoto who can do a lot of things similar, but also works a stiffer kind of UWF type of, of deal. So you've got the makings for a great match. And you've got two really defined characters here as well. Samurai, if I'm correct, he had just taken on this whole new attire that he's wearing. He had changed everything and it was different. But Kanemoto was the kind of guy, especially for years, where he was this asshole kind of a dick uh, when he was out there. And there's a couple of moments in here. First off, Kanemoto's kicks are fantastic. And there are certain things that you can look at from 25 years ago that definitely would appear dated. Kanemoto is the kind of guy I think you could plop into a ring right now in any promotion in the world. And, you know, based off of his 97 work, and I think he would still look amazingly relevant to this day. And that's a big thing. His kicks are phenomenal and they appear to be legit. I know he's pulling them, but they do appear to be legit. This match, if I'm correct, did this, this got like five or six stars from Meltzer? I guess I got yes. five, right? Yes. Yeah. And it was uh, in his top, top 10 matches for 1997. It would have to be because I mean, it's that great. Samurai was on a big push here because I know that he wound up being, uh, beating Liger to get the J crown, uh, which I just thought was just incredible. If you look at ringside, that's the other aspect. I love the guys that are at ringside because of the importance of this match. You want to make a match important, have some of your stars come out. Liger's out there. I believe that's a young Chris Jericho 
that and not uh, only that, uh, Chavo Guerrero Jr. is out there. Too. And Chavo Jr., yeah, yeah, with hair. But to see Jericho, I thought was cool. Jericho looking buff uh, at this stage of his career. So, yeah, so we talked about the kicks. The other aspect, Kanemoto selling when it's called for. There's a sequence in here where Samurai gives Kanemoto a DDT and Kanemoto sells it with his body in kind of this V position. He's bent over and doesn't lay prone. It's just, you've got to see it. I'm sure I'm not doing it justice by, by my description. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Kanemoto, and I did talk about this, he, he changed a couple of years later. I want to say 2000, 2001, somewhere around there. And, but at this stage, he, his gimmick was he was a fucking dick. And he would, uh, there was a point where he is ripping the mask off of uh, Samurai's face is, is clearly visible. And while uh, Samurai- and, and let me, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt yeah, you, yeah. but tell me how unusual is it in a match, especially one of this stature, uh, you know, the finals, where a mask is ripped off and the guy continues. You know, this isn't like, oh, the mask is torn off. He rolls out of the ring. His friends put the towel around his face. No, he gets the mask ripped off during the match. And he continues with the match. <laughs> it's he like, does. I, yeah, it was kind of crazy. Please continue. And, and, and it absolutely adds to the match by doing that. that yes. That's what I think works so well with it. But there's the point where uh, he's ripping off the mask and Samurai's down and Kanemoto spits on him. And, you know, in, in Japan, you don't always see that. You didn't, and now you do. But you didn't always see that back in the 80s and the 90s. That was a big deal. But that all went along with his gimmick. I will, and I'll wrap up this match by telling you, the last five minutes of this match are arguably, in my opinion, some of the best five minutes in the history of professional wrestling. So the match, uh, as Barry was talking, I did a little quick checking uh, in the yearbook, finished number six uh, in the match of the year uh, category. Wow. I, I just well, Here's what I loved about this match. You had a guy who works a, uh, a flying style, uh, in El Samurai, and then you had a guy in uh, just completely dropped in Kanemoto. I like had a brain fart there, Barry. Sorry, sure. and he Kanemoto to me reminded me of two guys. He reminds me of Dean Malenko uh, in the way that he can, you know, he works these holes, he works the moves, and then the guy, uh, uh, I believe his name is Katsuyora Shibata. Uh, oh, absolutely, the guy, the guy exactly. that had exactly. yeah, exactly had the multiple concussions and had to retire. Yep. And now he's a trainer, I think in the new Japan, new Japan dojo, but um, very similar to that guy. And ordinarily you would think ah, a matchup like that is going to be a real contrast of styles. I don't know if that's going to work completely works. And it completely works because to a certain extent, both guys adapt their style. And that's what makes people great wrestlers is the ability to adapt the styles. So I made a couple of uh, notes about this match that I wanted to, Share with not only the listener, but with Barry also. Barry, my God, the fucking slaps. Oh, my oh. God. These guys aren't just slapping each other, okay? This is not just a, hey, wake up slap. They are completely 100% paintbrushing each other's face. I mean, Barry, how many times did you wince when they slapped each other? Every time. And, Jeff, I, I, I do want to touch on it. That Shibata correlation it couldn't be any more on the money. He is he is Shibata 15 years before Shibata was Shibata. That's exactly yeah. and, who he and, is. And just uh, very, and, and he does another move where uh, I think 
He's got samurai in a leg lock. And samurai does this thing where he's trying to wiggle his leg free. And his foot is close to uh, uh, Kanemoto's face. And samurai begins hitting his own knee, which causes his foot to move forward and kick, kick him in the face kick Kanemoto in the face. And I was like, I've never fucking seen that before. That's absolutely genius the way they did that. And um, let's see what else. Uh, uh, you mentioned it. This match has a definite old school UWF feel because I wasn't watching this going, ooh, is this a shoot or anything like that? But this was a stiff fucking match. For for a match that includes a guy that is thought of as quote unquote a high flyer, Yeah, uh, he got down uh, on the mat and they worked uh, the, you know, this is a match, honestly, I mentioned uh, to some people that I just finished watching uh, or reading the, the Luthez book, uh, Hooker, which is a fantastic book, by the way. This is a match Luthez would watch and go, yeah, this is a really good match. You know, I don't think someone as old school as a Luthez would sit there and say, I don't, the fact that they're on the match, they're trading holds, they're doing it crisply, they're doing it cleanly. Uh, I think an older wrestler could watch this match and really enjoy the feel of this match, the fact that you're watching it, and it feels like this is a uh, a contest where these guys are trying to really out wrestle each other, and that's not something you see, you know, in a lot of uh, more modern wrestling. Uh, one of the other thing I really loved is so Samurai has Kanemoto, and he puts him in the corner, and he hangs him up upside down, and he kind of locks his feet in there. And there's a spot where the referee goes over and the referee is trying to unlock his feet. And as he's doing this, uh, Samurai goes in and puts his foot on uh, Kanemoto's face. And he's kind of like just doing it just to kind of grind on his face there. And as he's doing that and the referee releases Kanemoto's feet from on top where they're hooked on the ropes and he goes to fall back, he hooks El Samurai into like a heel lock. And again, that's a move I'm like, I've never fucking seen anyone. Have you ever seen anyone do that, Barry? No, I never. You're right about that now. It was super, super revolutionary. And the fact that after 50 years of fucking watching wrestling, I see a move that I've never seen done before. Right. And it was absolutely genius. You know, the way that he, you know, transitioned and reversed that into a heel lock. I was like, wow, that was really fucking cool. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, so someone pointed out, uh, as I was doing some uh, some research on this match, that Kanemoto, you know, we said Shibata, uh, we said, uh, you know, some other guy. Somebody said that he comes off almost like a bully the way that Naito did, say, four or five years ago. What do you think about that comparison? Yeah, I'm still going to go with Shibata, and I'll tell you why. I, I think, A, there's a physical resemblance, I think, a lot. Yes, same body great. type, uh, same stature. Here's the crazy thing, and this is what I like about, because I don't think I've watched this match in 23 years, 24 years. When I watched this match, I was a massive El Samurai fan. And, and I, I actually had a videotape that I probably gave to Jamie Ward, and it was the best of El Samurai. The guy I probably me, never gave it back to you either, knowing that. Well, I, oh, I actually gave it to him. I was like, oh, go okay. ahead, take sure. it. But I, I, I converted a lot to DVD, but it's not like I sit around even watching this stuff anymore. But uh, I, I was a big El Samurai fan, and I don't think I was a gigantic uh, Kanemoto fan. And then as I went back and I rewatched this match, Kanemoto was the one. And Samurai's fantastic, but Kanemoto really stood out to me here that why wasn't this guy a bigger star back then? You know, I know he, he did at least one match in WCW or NWA, 
think it was 95 or 96. Um, Alex Wright, if I'm remembering, I'm sure Lou would know. I think it was Alex Wright. Uh, but for whatever reason, I don't think Kanemoto, when I was watching these his matches and they were current, I don't think I was super impressed. And that is, uh, I couldn't be any more incorrect about that because in hindsight, his work is stands up unbelievable. This He is unbelievable and, and he comes off as fantastic. Why wasn't he a bigger star? Uh, that's a very good question. But no, he comes off as a, a complete bully in this match. Yeah. Uh, a real, Barry said, dick. Very fair uh, comparison. So the finish of the match, you know the move, Barry, uh, and we'll eventually talk AEW, I'm sure, where Sting uh, grabs the guy uh, yep. in a like a I rear headlock. About. Yep, and then does, do they call it the scorpion drop? Is that what it's called? I think he calls it the scorpion death drop. Correct? Yeah, okay. So the finish looks like that, except instead of dropping the guy right away, Samurai picks him, puts him in that hold, but then picks him up in the air yep. and then drops him. And that's the finish of the match. It was absolutely uh, really well done. So Samurai, uh, turns out, uh, Samurai's real name uh, is uh, Asamu Matsuda, and he was uh, Jushin Liger's protege. Uh, that was the storyline. So when you see uh, Liger at ringside and Liger's encouraging him, that's part of the whole teacher-student storyline. Uh, Kanemoto, I did not realize this until today, was actually the third Tiger Mask uh, after Mitsuhara Misawa took the mask off. And I think New Japan uh, maybe got the gimmick. Maybe they, they paid for the rights to get the gimmick back. They put Kanemoto under the hood as Tiger Mask 3. And, of course, uh, naturally what happened was he began to uh, – he took the mask off and began to transition to a style uh, very similar because I think uh, this guy uh, assisted in in training and working with him. Oh, Barry, here's a name we haven't mentioned in a while – and since I've been going back and listening to some of the very first episodes that we did, Kazu Yamazaki. Oh. Uh, the old UWF guy. UWFI guy, yeah. Yeah. And uh, wow, after I read that, I was like, fuck yeah, I can see that comparison because I loved Yamazaki. Yamazaki's kicks were some of the fastest and quickest kicks this side of Satoru Sayama. And to me, that is ultimate high praise. So uh, the fact that Kanemoto uh, was influenced and, and maybe helped train uh, by Yamazaki, you de- if you know Yamazaki, you can definitely see that in this match. So uh, we will post a link to this match uh, on our Breaking Kayfabe with Valdron and Barry uh, Facebook group. Definitely worth If you've never seen this match, go out of your way. Watch this match. If you're a fan of people like Dean Malenko, if you're a fan of Shibata, uh, people like that, you're definitely going to enjoy this match. Uh, definitely. Uh, worth going out of your way to check out. Okay, Barry, we want to thank our friend Nick Massey for uh, hooking us up with, uh, he is the Mountie. It's Jacques Rougeau is joining us, Barry. Jacques, how are you doing today, my friend? Hey, how you guys doing? It's a pleasure to have you with us here on Breaking KV with Badrin and Barry. Barry Jacques Rougeau, Quebec and WWE legend. I, I could be no more excited about this too. And I, what I like about, I, I was a big fan of Jacques going back to when he first started in the U S he spent some time, Jeff down in Florida when I lived down there. Uh, and he came in under the name, Jerry Roberts, uh, really a friendly guy, which I, I got to tell you, I loved it partially because you were this super baby face. Uh, you were a young kid, but you were really great with fans. 
And I have a photo that I took with you, 1979, when you were in Miami Beach wrestling. And uh, we had a lot of photographers there. And and one of the photographers took a photo of me with you. The beauty of it is we both had great heads of hair back then, John. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, for me, I've been bald for about uh, 25 years at this stage, so I don't have it. But why don't we talk about that? Why don't we talk about your early experiences in the U.S.? I know that you spent time in Florida, and I think you were also in Georgia as Jerry Roberts, correct? Exactly. Actually, uh, to be honest with you, those are great, great moments of my career. Uh, Before I hit the WWF in 85, when I started in 77, I went to Calgary for Brett's father. And uh, I was wrestling uh, uh, the whole of the Western Canada. And then I went from 78, I went to Mexico. And 79, I went to Kansas City. And then I started doing small territories like that. Those were really great times for learning, learning times. But uh, when I, uh, I got to tell you this thing. First of all, I'd like to see if ever you have a chance to send me that picture of you and I. I'd sure like to go back memory lane. So if you want to send it to me later. In Absolutely. And, and, and the other thing is... Uh, uh, what I wanted to say was all these small territories at the time were so good to me because, uh, but when I went to Atlanta, this is where it all happened to me because Atlanta was on TBS. It was seen from Boston to San Francisco. Uh, TBS had exposure all around the country. So all the small territories that saw me work and I was there for a year and a half, uh, thanks to Ronnie West, the referee who loved me to death and Oli loved me a lot. And then uh, Dusty Rhodes liked me very, very much too. So, so, uh, so, but when I got there, I realized I was sitting down with them, and, and, and after about just a month, I, I got beat just about every week, you know, in every match. And then I started saying to myself, because I was I was becoming an upcoming wrestler in the small territories everywhere else. But when I got to TBS, the, the talent was huge, and, and so I wasn't ready to have my break yet or any kind of break. So, uh, so that's when I decided to, to to change my name to to, to Jerry Roberts. Because I didn't want to, 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 the Rougeau name to go down as the biggest losers of, the, of Canada. But uh, so I changed my name just to save the Rougeau name, the image of that. And it was so funny at the time because uh, Ronnie West, he was the greatest referee of all times for me. And he was so kind to me. And, and he kept calling me Jerry Jobber, you know, so uh, <laughs> Jerry Jobber. And, uh, but those are good times, you know, I, I learned so much. And, and I got to tell you something that really, really helped me in my career and my business is Ric Flair. Uh, Ric Flair did something amazing to me. I'll never forget that day. I walk in the, the uh, CBS uh, station and we were working on the Omni that night. And, uh, but I was not, I was just going in for TV to do a job for Ric Flair on, on, uh, on the TV in the afternoon on the on TBS. And when I got to the TV station in the morning, I looked at the sheet on the wall and I saw Jerry Roberts against Ric Flair. And I went like, Holy shit. You know, like, that's that's out of my league you know like it's a holy shit so i you know i said okay so when rick flair came in the dressing room he was so impressive too in those days he was the world champ and he was always impressive with his robes with his way of talking with his his appearance he was the total package for me and uh so when i sat down with him in the dressing room i remember i said uh, mr flair i came up to him i said mr flair i said uh, i think i'm wrestling you on the second tape and he says uh oh well he says uh don't worry. He says, just follow me and everything will be good. So I said, okay. So I was so freaking nervous. And then when we got in the ring for the match lasted six minutes and for five minutes, 
he had me doing hip tosses, nip-ups, drop kicks off the top rope. I used to do amazing drop kicks off the top rope. I was doing, for five minutes, I, I, I whipped his butt. And the last minute of the match, he boom, boom, boom. He screwed me real fast and he beat me. And, and, and that was seen on TBS around the country. So all the other territories saw me give Ric Flair a hard time in the ring. And, and so that really opened all the doors for me everywhere else. But when I got back in the dressing room, I saw when Rick was coming to the dressing room, I was overwhelmed. I, I, I didn't know how to, I didn't know what was going on, to be honest with you. And I told him, I said, Mr. Flair, I said, I, I, I don't know. I just wanted to ask you, why did you do that? You know, like, I'm Jerry Jobber. You know, it's like, why did you make me look so good? And he looked at me, and that lesson in life stuck with me all my life. And he said, you know, he says, uh, kid, he says, if I would have went in the ring and I would have swept the ring with you for six minutes and would have beat you, he says, who would I have beaten? I would have beaten nobody. Now, you went in there, you fought like the devil, you surprised everyone, you surprised me, and then I beat someone who knows how to wrestle. That's more credibility for me. Wow. And that's and, a, that's and a lesson that we could still apply today, you know? And, and I swear, I never forgot Ric Flair from that day on. I had the biggest respect for him. I always have. And uh, so anyway, so I, I enjoyed those. Those were good times in life, those small territories. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that was good time. So, so other than uh, the exposure that you got being uh, in Atlanta, uh, you talked about, you know, the different territories, Florida, uh, Georgia. You said you were in Kansas City up in Calgary Mexico. when you first started. Yeah. Mexico. Yeah. So taking aside the whole financial aspect of how much you were getting paid or in some cases not getting paid, which not territory? Much. <laughs> yeah. Which territory do you look back and you went, ah, you know, that was a really a fun territory to work in. Pensacola. Really? Okay. Pensacola Any particular reason why? Well, the long, you had one long trip, you had 250 miles to go to Birmingham, and the rest of the trip was like 80 miles a night, 60 miles, hometown, 70 miles, 100 miles. So we were home every night, and I was staying right at the Howard Johnson on the beach at Pensacola. Wow. So it was like it was like living a dream world. We Sometimes we'd leave at 4 or 5 o'clock to go to our city to do the show, so we had all day to go in the gym in the morning, go on the beach all afternoon, enjoy the place. And uh, So I would have to say Pensacola, plus Robert Fuller, I got to tell you, I worked with him a couple of times and man, he took a liking into me and my work and he gave me some breaks there that are incredible. I remember Dothan, Alabama one time, he came up to me one time and he said, uh, he said, Jacques, he said, listen, he says, I, I, I think I could do a good deal with you. And he says, would you be open to, he said, if uh, during the match, he says, uh, I'll have Joe LaDuke coming behind you and he'll put a, some ether in a, in, in, on a, a cloth. And he's going to put you to sleep at the end of the match. And he's going to shave your head all off, you know, because I'm from Montreal. Joe LaDuke was from Montreal also. So, so there was like a rival, a rivalry there and that he was creating. And when he shaved my head in the afternoon on TV in Dothan, that night I took the Southeastern heavyweight title. It was my first heavyweight title belt. And, and and I can guarantee you, I sent pictures to my newspaper guy in Montreal. <laughs> Put that in the papers. You know, that was my first heavyweight title. I'd won a few uh, titles underneath, like junior heavyweights and stuff like that. But that was to beat Joe LaDuke for the heavyweight title. And Robert Fuller, 
he was the booker, but he was a friend. We'd play tennis in the day. We'd play, you know, a ping pong and pool. We were really close friends. And I learned how to do some booking with him also because he was doing the booking. So I'd be sitting beside him and looking at the booking. I learned so much about the business in Pensacola. Plus, like I said, the territory being short trip territory and the beaches and all that. So I, I will have to say Pensacola. Wow. So if you're just joining us, and of course, we always ask the question, where have you been that you're just joining us right now? We are with Jacques Rougeau, known as Jacques Rougeau Jr., Jerry Roberts, but more importantly to a lot of our fans, known as the Mountie. You'll be able to meet Jacques coming up Sunday, October the 24th, starting at 10 a.m. at the Doubletree in Hartford, Connecticut. It is the Wrestling Classic, and it's being put on by our old friend Nick Massey of Captain's Corner. Jeff, listen to this lineup of who's going to be there. Besides the Mountie, uh, you have got former World's Heavyweight Champion Bob Backlund. You have got Terry Runnels, Adnan Casey, Booker T, Sergeant Slaughter, Tatanka, Adam Baum. This is a pretty solid lineup right here, Jeff. I know Nick has said I should come up to Connecticut to meet some of these guys in person. Uh, My birthday being the day after on the 25th. I am going to get in the car and I will be in Connecticut on October the 25th. And I encourage all of our listeners, come up, say hello to me, say hello to the Mountie. You're getting some great stories here. But, Jacques, I have a question. You you brought up Joe LaDuke. And, of but course— One second. Before you go with your question, I have to ask you something. I absolutely. have to say something. Because while you were talking, I felt I almost felt like I was missing a part of my body when you were talking. Because you're saying that you could come and meet the Mountie, but you could also come and meet the Quebecers. Because I was a Quebecers, three-time tag team champion. And you could also come and meet also— uh, the fabulous Rougeau brothers, one half, which is me. I was I, I was very, very lucky. And it happens sometimes when I do these Comic-Cons that, that people ask me to take my hat off and just be Jacques Rougeau or the, the Quebecers. Or, so, so, so if ever you've learned or you followed all of my four characters, then, then, then I just want to mention, because a lot of people, you know, they know me as a Mountie, but there is still some people that don't realize that the Quebecers and the fabulous Rougeau brothers and the Mountie was all me. So I apologize for interrupting you. I just wanted to put that in there. Well, Jacques, I just want to yeah. ask, is any chance Jerry Roberts will be there? I was going to say that. You're always <laughs> Jerry Roberts to me. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you need any work to be done around the place, I'll be Jerry Jobber. No <laughs> well, I love that as a matter of fact. So I was going to ask about Joe LaDuke. So growing up in Florida, and I, I grew up in Florida, I went to wrestling beginning in 1971 when I was a very young kid. Uh, and I went really up until the bitter end of championship wrestling from Florida, which was 1987. But Joe LaDuke was a big part of of my childhood and we saw Joe LaDuke along with his uh his wrestling brother Paul LaDuke um, yeah, who I yeah. believe still lives in in Montreal or yeah yeah he's still alive he's still yeah, kicking still up there so <laughs> Joe was this likable babyface lumberjack that in 1979 right around the same time you were there transformed himself into this maniacal heel that we had never seen that side of Joe LaDuke before. So I'm assuming you knew Joe fairly well. What was Joe like in real life? And do you have any Joe LaDuke stories you can share with us? 
so happy that you, you, you opened that door for me because, you know, <laughs> I'm a person that always likes to give recognition to the people and, and, and to thank the people that helped me in the business. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the, the day that I booked myself in Pensacola with Robert Fuller. And I arrived, and at, when I got to the airport to the baggage claim, I got to the luggage. Um, I got to the luggage, and uh, um, yeah, I got to the luggage, and uh, and he was there. He was sitting right there. Sorry, Steve, if I just breathe. I was, and and uh, so he was sorry. I was talking to my bird and my wife because uh, I got a bird like Coco Beware. But anyway, long story <laughs> short, when I got to the when I got to the baggage claim, Joe LaDuke was there, and I, 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 and I couldn't believe it because he had worked for so many years for my dad. I was a kid. I was like 10, 12 years old. I used to go see him at the Montreal Forum, and 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 I loved the guy. He was like you said, he was big baby face, and he was so kind to me all the time when I was growing up, when I was getting his hot dogs and stuff like that in the dressing room. And and and, and there I see him at the baggage claim, and he comes up to me, says, uh, "How you doing, kid?" And I looked at him. I said, "Joe, why? What are you doing here?" He says, "Well, I'm working here." I said, "Really?" And then we were speaking French, and then and then he said to me, he says, "Uh." Wow, I said, well, Joe, I said, you know, maybe I said, you know, a place of a hotel while the boys are saying it. No, 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 no. He says, you're coming to stay at my place. So he took me on the beach at the Howard Johnson where I was talking about before. And he had two beds in his room. And he, he, he told me to unpack on one side of the bed. He said, my fridge is there for you. He said, if you need anything, he didn't charge me rent. He just helped me start. Uh, and uh, I, I never forgot that. I never forgot from Joe LaDuke, uh, the 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 big man with the big cash uh, thick, uh, which means you know the ribs, the big ribs, the big chest, and the, he 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 had he, he there was a reason why he was so big up on the body because his heart was as big as that. Yeah, what a what a great wrestler he was, and I, I grew up like Barry. I grew up in South Florida also, and uh, one of the uh, it, I told the story here on this uh, podcast before that while all my friends became Dusty Rhodes fans after Dusty did his big baby face turn, I was a Joe LaDuke fan uh, yeah. because I love <laughs> Joe and the one arm backbreaker and all that. And, you know, let, let me just ask you, uh, or as a, not so much as a wrestler, but as a wrestling fan, Barry and I have talked about this. How come Joe LaDuke was never brought up to New York to wrestle either Bruno or, or Bob Backlund? Do you have any idea why that would have never happened? No, I don't. And, uh, and uh, I didn't know he never went there either. You're just teaching yeah, me that I, now. You're I just, I just think that that was money to be made. Of course. Jesus Christ. You think of all the money that, uh, that Hulk did with King Kong Bundy and John Studd and, uh, and the big guys, you know, the boys that, and, and believe me, Joe LaDuke, not only he was a great worker, but he had this charisma and he had, I think he had, uh, eyes the size of a tennis ball when he'd look at you in an interview you know yep. he was scary you know he was and all these scars like a duel coming from top to the bottom it was a very impressive man and a, and, and a gimmick that you you could very you could easily be convinced that it's true and, and i and i don't know if it's because hulk wasn't there yet or i don't know why but i know that joe leduc could have definitely drawn some serious money with san martino and uh, so there, there probably was which i'd be which uh, I probably may not be surprised, but maybe there was a personal conflict with Vince McMahon or, or actually was senior at the time. So I, I've never met Vince McMahon senior. Only I only met junior. So, so, so maybe it was just a conflict of personality or, or maybe something, a misunderstanding that, uh, you know, sometimes they, uh, 
it clicks or it doesn't click. And, you know, sometimes when you're, I always say to people, you know, uh, when you're a king, you're in a deck of cards, you're a king, you're not a jack. I always say that because my name is Jack, you know, <laughs> and, it's like, uh, and, and I'm thinking that maybe sometimes we, uh, we collide with the characters and with, uh, we can, with attitudes and all that stuff. And, and sometimes it clicks, sometimes it doesn't. So what I've happened, what I've happened, I don't know, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm very, very surprised and, and kind of disappointed to hear that because to me, Joel LeDuc was a, was a perfect guy, you know, for the business. Oh, and he would have been the perfect, especially if you've got a baby face champion. Joe LaDuke as a heel is like the perfect challenger. So yeah, I yeah, have Lumberjack and uh, Lumberjack gimmick was so good. And uh, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So so my, my question is going to be a little different right now. But I, and I say this because uh, I, I've I've dated women when I, in my younger days who were from Montreal. Well, good for you. Good for, well, good yeah, for you. But I, it's been years. We, we should, I should say it's been years. So if I, yeah, these days I'm in a bit of a dry spell, but are there more beautiful women? <laughs> we are, this is a different type of podcast. First off, as you can tell, things but, Jacques did not think we'd be discussing. Yeah, exactly. Are there, That's are there okay. I'm open. I'm open to this kind of stuff. I love it. Are there more beautiful women in the world? Are there any more beautiful women in the world uh, than the women in Quebec? It, it, do they exist? I, in my opinion, they probably don't. Okay. They are the most beautiful. All women right, all right, all right. Let's stop the romancing here. Let's let's <laughs> just go with it. Let's just go. Let's just let's go with the facts. To be honest with you, if you're an American and you come to Montreal, you will find the most beautiful woman in the world. If you are a Canadian and you go to New York to Miami. To Los Angeles, you'll find the most beautiful woman in, in the world. So I think sometimes it's mostly like in Montreal, we've had one good cliche that was really good is the women are all beautiful everywhere, to be honest with you. But in Montreal, what was fun, what was really uh, appetizing for the, the, the Americans was the French speaking. And, and, and as much as like when I go to, 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 to Mexico or something, when the girls speak Spanish or I, I think it's beautiful because I don't understand it. And it's like it, 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 it picks my curiosity. And, and, and so so I honestly think that the, the women are beautiful everywhere in the world. There's some some everywhere. But but I think the difference of mentalities, the difference of uh, of uh, how can I say that of, uh, the way of life. Uh, just it's it's not the same for you when you go somewhere else. So it's it's attra it's attractive. It, it makes it more seductive. Am I making any sense here? Or? No, that actually makes uh, a lot of sense. Yeah, that's very fair. So well, let me ask you. Uh, let's get back to wrestling uh, for just a second. You know, one of the things we did an episode uh, some some time back where we discussed the great tag teams in the history of wrestling. And of course, uh, growing up in, uh, in Quebec, I'm sure that you saw plenty of great tag teams up there and you and your brother, uh, you and Pierre with the Quebecers. So if I was going to ask you taking yourself and your brother and your team with Pierre out of the equation, tell yep. the folks listening to this show, give me a couple of tag teams that you think when you look back in retrospect, wow, those guys were really good. You mean from Montreal or from Montreal? No, no. Okay, it could be Montreal or it could be guys in the South that you work with or guys in the okay, WWF that you work with. Perfect. The teams that I come really fast that I really, uh, that I liked a lot, it may sound crazy when I'm saying that was intimidating and that was very, very uh, credible. Well, I have to say the Bulldogs. And I'm going to have to say also Demolition. I'm going to have to say uh, 
I've always liked Martel and Santino, uh, Tito Santana, uh, Tito Santana with Martel, the strike force, uh, the rockers, the best, uh, Marty Giannini, Shawn Michaels, man, what a, what a night off to work with them and what, what credibility. Um, uh, and it's funny that I'm saying that I can't believe demolition is not in the hall of fame, but anyway, uh, long story short is like, uh, they, they were really something exceptional when they came in and, uh, you know what? There was a lot of the uh, the Islanders, you know, and those guys from Samoan that were very good workers too. Uh, that, that I enjoyed a lot. Uh, the Killer Bees, uh, the Hard Foundation, Jim Yanvel, Nightheart, and Bret Hart were such a cliche because they were not alike at all. <laughs> they were just when they were put together, they were, it was amazing. They were brother-in-laws, and and that was amazing. Um, I'm sure I'm missing a bunch there, you know. But well, let me let me ask you: me. What about when you yeah. were when you were growing up in Montreal? Do you remember any yeah. uh, particular teams that you really thought as a kid, wow, these, I really like these guys? You know, my brother Raymond and Denny Gauthier were a good team. But, but to be honest with the, the teams, not really, because I was young. I didn't understand that there was Killer Von Schatz and Carl Von Ess, I think, Kurt Von Ess or Carl Von Schatz. I don't know if you remember those guys if sure, they okay. existed in the States. But uh, they were good here. You know, they, 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 the Castillo brothers, Fidel and Raul Castillo. I don't know if you know them. Yep. Uh, you ever knew them? Yeah, or they? they were, uh, oh yes, they were Cubans, Cubans, right? Oh yeah, yeah, Fidel and Raul. They were good teams. Uh, I enjoyed also, you know, guys that work sometimes in teams. And not, you ever know a guy that was called Don Serrano? Sure, oh, sure. Yeah. Buddha. Was, they used to call him Buddha. Oh yeah, he was he was a good worker. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, another guy too, Lenny Hurst. You remember that guy? Lenny Hurst, who was, I think, Jamaican or British, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was great working. On, there were a lot of guys working as a team. But uh, but as far as, to be honest with you, when you live in Quebec and in Canada, you got to go with the Rougeau brothers. And I'm, I'm talking about my dad and my uncle. You know, I'm talking, they make such a great name for the Rougeaus up in Quebec. It's amazing. Uh, my uncle Johnny was not only a great wrestler with my dad, but he was into politics. He was the right-hand man of René Lévesque, the guy who was trying to separate Quebec from Canada. He was also the president of the Hockey Junior League that goes just before the NHL in Quebec. He was the, he had two teams, my uncle Johnny, and then at the end, he was the president of the team, of the whole team. So, so, so they were very, very much the idols here in Eastern Canada, my father and my uncle. And me being a, such a big mark and a fan of them, uh, I don't really remember any other teams that, 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 uh, that, that strike me right now, to be honest with you. No, that's, uh, that's plenty. That's what we were looking for. Yeah. And, and, this, and I love hearing these stories. And I like the fact that we're talking about, you know, a territory, Montreal, you know, going back 40 and 50 years ago, because I, I think that's a region that really doesn't get discussed enough. Uh, so what was it like? You know, you grew up, you're in your family, as you said, your father and your uncle, your brothers wrestled. I know besides Raymond, you had another brother that was into wrestling. Uh, what yeah, was it like my, growing up? My grand uncle, too. My grand uncle. I don't know if you ever heard Eddie Oje. You ever heard the name Eddie Oje? Is it A-U-G-E-R? A U G E R, you got it. You're good. I have heard of him. Yes, there, my man. I don't know. You're yeah, good. and uh, yeah, he was the first one in the family. He was the he was my father, Jacques and Johnny. They were my father, and my uncle. It was their uncle, and they he was. So we're four generations of Rougeaus in the in, in Quebec that were wrestling, but uh, my but he was a good he he was a good wrestler too. He was more like a, a George the Animal steel size of a guy. He wasn't tall, tall. He was very uh, chubby there. 
but 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 he was a great worker. And and uh, and now that you're saying that, I'm going back. And you know who the guys I'm starting to remember now, as you say that, you're bringing back memory lane for me. Uh, you guys, I'm sure you know Bobo Brazil. Of course. Uh, and, and I'm sure you know Igor. Is a guy called Oh, Mighty Igor. Igor. Yeah, sure. Mighty Igor. I'm thinking all the guys that used to, the Maguire twins. You ever knew the Maguire twins? Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. Riding those they little motorcycles, right? They used to hide them on the way to the ring. You couldn't see them; they were so fat. Yeah, you know that they, you couldn't see their their little mini bikes. You know they come in with mini bikes. Yeah, so, so Montreal, Montreal. I mean, all the great talent passed through Montreal, and uh, I know that Killer Kowalski. Were you there? Oh my! Yes. Yeah, so I guess you the year. I mean, because I know that there were years where he was public enemy number one in Montreal. You ain't lying, Killer Kowalski. Jesus Christ, he he. He was, you know, and uh, he had such a reputation built on, on, on this. Uh, I wouldn't say uh, uh, false story, but with Yukon Eric, where he he bit his ear off, and I'm sure you heard the story in, in the wrestling legends that 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 Yukon Eric was a uh, he he was uh, on the getting up from the mat, and and Kowalski was coming off with a knee drop off the top rope, and he 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 he, he hit his ear on the way down, and his ear was like almost all off. But by the time he hit him, Yukon uh, uh, Eric was already flat on the face because the impact was so big. And, and, and when that happened, Kowalski went down to his knees to apologize. And that Yukon Eric, what a tough guy. He says, bite my ear, bite my ear. And then, you, and then Kowalski just went down and he, he played the game and he tore his ear off of him, you know, with what was left hanging on it. And that story, my God. So Kowalski was a killer. You know, he's going to tear your ear off if he has to. So, 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 yes, he had some tremendous heat and he was very credible with the size of his face and the size of his hands. And uh, yeah, yeah, he was something else here. So I think we would be remiss if we were going to talk about Montreal and Quebec to not ask you for an Andre story. Oh, my God. I got plenty. I'll just give you one. Okay. First, I'll tell you. We'll, that twist, you, we'll twist your arm and ask you to give us just one. Okay. First, I got to introduce this. I got to tell you that Andre the Giant and I were so close, really so close through all his career because I played crib, cribbage. You know, I don't know if you know that game there. It's yes, little sure. dot near cribbage. And then there was Arnold Skolin that played cribbage, and then there was me. We're the only two guys who played crib. So when I was in WWF, Andre had me go sit up in first class every time we'd fly. I was in economy and he'd send me up to go play crib with him. But I'll tell you the best story of them all is Andre the Giant. He's in Abitibi, northwest of Quebec, the province of Quebec, in a town called uh, uh, Val d'Or, Abitibi. And, uh, and he's, um, he's in a bar. I'm not there that night, so I'm just telling you hearsay of what I've heard. He's in the bar, and there's, uh, you, you wouldn't think it would happen, but there was a couple of guys that were pretty drunk, and there's one guy that came up to him and started to mess around with him verbally, just, you know, giving him shit. And, 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 and Audrey just stood up and at one point, and uh, there, there was two or three guys, and anyway, they start running, and they ran out to nightclub, and they jumped in there. I don't know if you know, yeah, I'm sure you know that, a Volkswagen, you know, like a Beetle. Oh, yeah. You know, sure. and he, and he got on there and he flipped the car over on top with the three guys in the car. Wow! And that's a true story. I swear, my dad who died last year, I, I swear it's the truth. And people think it's you know, oh, it's exaggerating, oh, it's a story, but it's not. He picked up the car and he literally put it on the top, and that's uh, he was. Uh, he must have been pissed off. 
and, and, but that story stayed with us in Quebec for so long, and I was in the territory at the time working, so I know it's all true because Dino Bravo was there, and there was a couple of guys that, 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 that saw it happen. And you know, Andre the Giant could take a battery, a car battery with one hand and pick it up. Wow. Just try to pick up a try to pick up a battery with two hands. <laughs> but anyway, long story short is that man was just uh, incredible. I'm sorry if I disappoint you and I didn't talk no, about No, 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 that's a great story. story. Uh, yeah, I didn't talk about drinking stories. Yeah, but everybody <laughs> talks about those but, stories. So yeah, you gave us something <laughs> new and uh we, we are so excited today. We have got uh, Jacques Rougeau with us. Jacques Rougeau making a couple of appearances for our good friend Nick Massey, the captain. He, Jacques will be doing a happy hour live with the Mountie. This will be live on Facebook coming up on Saturday night, October the 23rd, beginning at 7 p.m. I have been on a couple of these, uh, these happy hours that Nick does, and they are a blast. I encourage everybody listening to join in, get your autograph merchant uh, merchandise from the Mountie or Jacques Rougeau Jr. Uh, and we went through his list of gimmicks a few minutes ago. If you want to meet the man in person, and uh, I am texting with the captain right now saying, Nick, I am coming to Connecticut. Uh, you will want to be there on Sunday, October the 24th, beginning at 10 a.m. It's at the Double Tree in Hartford, Connecticut. It is the Wrestling Classic. Listen to the names. Bob Backlund, Sergeant Slaughter, Booker T, Adnan Casey, Terry Runnels, Adam Baum, uh, Tatanka. More names to be announced. Of course, the Mountie Jacques Rougeau Jr. will be there. I'm going to be there. We encourage everybody to join uh, and come if say you- hello. And please tell them that you heard them on Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. So my, my question for you is, your, yourself and your brother Raymond uh, were really the ultimate baby faces in a lot of ways. You know, you were two young guys, good looking, uh, you know, great in the ring. Uh, well, I don't know. About, I don't know about my brother there, but uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, but you guys made a really good tag team. And, uh, and, and you guys, let's be honest, you guys were good looking guys. And, you know, and you're in the hey, listen, I got to tell you, I got to tell you something that's really amazing. I got to share this with you guys. Sure. Uh, you know, you know, I'm, 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 I've been retired for a couple of years, but uh, still active, but very retired in wrestling. And uh, and uh, I went to do this fan fest last weekend. And uh, and I gotta tell you something. And, and I told that to the there was three girls that was there plus two other guys who were six of us, and, and they were young and they were good looking and they were everything that you know. I'm 61 years old now, you know. So I'm looking at them, you know, and going that. And I'm saying, and I told them all there was a. It didn't last long, but we had a couple of minutes by ourselves. And I told them, I said, hey. I said, you know what, guys, I, I want to share this with you guys, because when I was on the road 25 days a month, you know, working and they'd ask me to do a personal appearance or something. It was like, yeah, you know, like I, I want to see my kids. I don't have time for this. You know, and the money didn't matter anymore. It was more it was more my sanity, my personal health and sanity. But now that I'm not doing nothing, I told these guys at the, the Comic Con the other day, I said, hey. You know, you have no idea how much fun I'm having here. Like, you know, to appreciate all the people that are coming up with pictures, cassettes, T-shirts, and stuff that I'd never seen about myself. That, that, and they're all, and, and it was amazing. There were people coming in, and, and, and I was in Queens, and, and people coming in, and, and they were all old, ugly, and gray-haired, and they're saying, Jacques, how you doing? 
And then they'd look at me, do you remember me? And then I'd always answer, sure I do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but what a great pleasure to see that we had this effect on people. And while we were busting our, 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 our asses and, and rolling with the, the flow and just working hard, we never took the time to realize how much we, we touched the people. And now that we are lonely today and we're not doing much and that people come to acknowledge our, our, the things that we've done in the past and all that, it's just amazing feeling. So, wow, that's great. And I'm sure, Barry, uh, if you are going up to that appearance, will you, in fact, be bringing that photo from 1979? I will. So, Jeff, I just texted it to you and to Sweet Lou. When we're done recording, I'm going to text it to Jacques, but I will and uh, and I'm going to bring some more stuff from his time as Jerry Roberts in Florida. But uh, wow, yeah, wow. these stories are great, though. And what what I like, and certainly we we have you for a very limited time today. Will you come back and discuss your career in Montreal wrestling with us in the future? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, I always like that. And I'll talk to you about my new project that I'm doing, Wrestling Academy 2022 across Canada. I'm starting this new thing. So go see jacquesrougeau.ca, everybody. It's very important. Go see jacquesrougeau.ca, and you'll see what's happening. And, you know, we had a show up in Quebec here that was called Star Academy, which were all singers. And there was a bunch of singers for many years. For every year, they've been doing that, and they take like 40 singers, and then they start eliminating them week after week. And I will doing this concept. I'm getting TV right now. It's not done yet, but I'm working on it very, very hard. And we have, I have QT Marshall from the Nightmare Factory. He was going to take my four winners and give them a tryout in the States. And then all the Canadian wrestlers from Vancouver to Halifax, from Calgary, from Leftbridge, from Toronto, Montreal, everywhere. They're all checking in now. They're now applying on jacquesrougeau.ca for Wrestling Academy. And they're all so excited. It's, it's for them. It's like it's never been seen something like that before. And the good thing and the fun thing about it is we're going to have a panel of four judges. And every time that we have matches, the four judges will vote, but they'll only vote for 40%. And the last 60% is the people that are going to text in and write in to say, I want to keep that team. I don't want to keep that team. I want to keep. And it's going to go all the way to the end. And since my three sons are not wrestling anymore, they, they quit three years ago, my, my three sons. Now it's going to be fair for everybody. It's going to be no rugels, no preferential, no, no, uh, you know what I mean? It's going to be like the best wrestlers from Canada are going to come out and they're going to get a tryout with QT Marshall. And isn't that exciting? Plus, they're all going to win $5,000 each. The four winners, the girl winner, the guy winner in singles, and the tag team guys. They're going to win $5,000 each. Well, that's awesome. Hey, Jacques, we want to thank you. Uh, and we want to thank our friend Nick Massey for uh, for hooking us up with you. And uh, again, that website, jacquesrougeau.ca. Check it out. Yes. And Barry, I know you're going to have fun up there with Jacques and Bob Backlund and the rest of the crew uh, with Nick Massey. Yeah, this is, uh, and I'm so excited too. And I got to tell you, it's, uh, I, I've never, other than that that brief photo that I took with Jacques some 42 years ago, uh, I've never had much interaction or any interaction. I got to tell you, I'm just sitting here enthralled by hearing all your recollections and these stories of Canada and, and oh, your well, career. You. So absolutely. <laughs> so I, I really, I hope that you will come back and have kind of an in-depth where we can talk about what it was like back in those days. But Jeff, I don't want to go on record, but I think I'm going to. This might be my favorite interview ever. He's never said that either, Jacques. 
take a number, my friend. Everybody says that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jacques. Yeah, you know, hey, listen, there's one thing I want everybody to know yeah. that are going to come to see me. There's one thing they got to keep in mind. It's very important. They could say what they want about me. They could like me or not, but they must remember that Maori always gets his mad. <laughs> so next, Barry, we're going to talk. We are going to January 20th, 1997. Oh, Barry, it's time to walk the King's Road, my friend. Are you ready? Oh, you know, I, that's that's one of my favorite roads to walk, Jeff. So absolutely. Well, it's one of your favorite roads to walk other or watch other people walk. I don't know if you like to walk. That's true. Yourself, yeah. We are talking Mitsuhara Misawa versus Kenta Kobashi. Wow, Barry. Anytime we walk the King's Road, uh, we're never disappointed. And, you know, uh, before I go to your uh, thoughts on this, this just feels like it's like watching a heavyweight boxing match. You know, this is, this to me was like, you know, so often you, you hear stories about like Ali and Frazier and the Thrilla and Manila and the way that sort of had a feel to it, uh, like a Muhammad Ali fight. Am I completely off base there? No, that's exactly what it was. It was yeah. a big time feel. Absolutely. So tell the folks what you thought about this match and then I'll give my feelings. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause when you, when you said about walking that road and you're, you're absolutely 100% correct with that, Jeff check is that as you watch a match like this and, and you watch as and Kobashi was known for his chops and you know <laughs> when you when you consider what Kobashi he does not sting he chops to hurt you he chops to hurt you and when you and you see him now he looks great too which yes. is the crazy thing but here was a guy that laid his body on the line multiple injuries because again this was not a guy that did anything you know halfway he always went for it and then in the middle of his career i guess maybe a little towards the end of his career he got cancer was it a kidney i believe removed uh, am i, I recalling you correct but okay. we'll wait it, for sweet lou to confirm or deny it, but it, but you you think about how tough these guys are, and you watch like one of these chops or one of these slaps, and these guys do it to each other, you know, dozens of times. What it would take one slap or chop to me to probably land me in the ER, you know? It, it's it literally is incredible the amount of punishment that they took, and in some ways. When you you go back and you watch, especially when it comes to Misawa, and you know Misawa passed away. I, I it was a like a a belly to back suplex. It was a very innocuous like hold with not much behind it, and he passed away. And I guess it would that was the final blow, uh, you know, to his body that he could take. But when you go back and you watch these matches with all of these drops occurring on the head and on the neck, it's really brutal. And obviously knowing what we know now about how a lot of guys have either passed away or had their careers uh, cut short because of uh, injuries or being paralyzed, it, it really is incredible. Uh, what I like about this match, and, and this I think is indicative of the booking style uh, of the promotion back then, is this match, and I like your your comparison to Ali or Frazier, the big fight feel it absolutely has and the match tells a story and that's what i like there is there's no rush out of the gate for these guys there is a slow story build up leading to a climax and i know that jeff you you personally enjoy when things lead to climaxes correct i think we all do 
I think we all do. But that's what I like about this match is that it did. So the other match that we talked about, these guys are beating the shit out of each other right out of the gate. This one is different because it's telling a bigger story and it's a little slower pace. Uh, it picks up as it goes. But that was indicative of, of the booking style back in. These guys work together only three or four times in singles matches, if I'm correct. I do think and I've seen all those matches. I think it was three. And I, this is the best match. Uh, between those two guys. Uh, I believe this came in second for the Wrestling Observer Award of Match of the Year, Jeff. Would that be correct? Uh, please continue as I check my reference book here. Okay, and I'll drag this out uh, so you can go ahead and check. I think it was the match between Bret Hart and Stone Cold at WrestleMania that year. I don't know what number that was. I think that one, and that's a very good match. And I, you know, I don't want to take anything away and I think the, I will say, excuse me, Barry, please. This was number two in the match of the year. It did lose to Bret Hart and Steve Austin, okay. but garnered more first place votes than the Bret Hart, Steve Austin match. Well, it's a better match. And, and I, first off, I can't believe that I was correct about that. So for, we should acknowledge that. I Barry, have no Barry idea. you were 100% correct. I won't even do the check after oh, that, Jeff. That is that's your, my gimmick. that's my gimmick. Okay. That's your gimmick. And I'm not stealing it, but honestly, I don't know how I remembered that, but I, I can tell you, I do think the Bret Hart stone cold match was great. I think the, the repercussions of what happened after that match laid the foundation for the success of the WWE, obviously. So maybe as an important match worldwide, that may win. However, if you're going match, match versus match, just looking at a match, this match wins and wins handily. It should be first place. It is great. We, we have got, the problem is now is that we're pointing out and we're bringing forth and bringing to light some of the greatest wrestling matches of all time. I mean, there's no doubt in the two matches. While they're very different, the two matches we discussed today, they're both absolutely incredible for different reasons, Jeff. Yeah, you know, uh, when I mentioned the the Frazier Ali match, uh, the the Thrilla in Manila, as Muhammad Ali called it, I recall a, a quote that Muhammad Ali said after the match where he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something like, that was the closest I've ever felt to death. Like, basically surviving that match. Uh, it was the closest he'd ever felt to death. And when you watch this match at the end of this match, these guys are completely spent and either they are incredible at selling after like 42 friggin' minutes of beating the living hell out of one another, or these guys really work that close to death. Let me tell you the, uh, the shots very referenced it, not just the chops, but the blows to the back of the neck. Oh. And the the blows to the head are just scary. And, you know, with the benefit of 24 years of hindsight, you're just like, wow. And, and you know, we've talked about how uh, Toshiaki Kawada, who was one of the four pillars, when you see a photo of him now, he, he looks 20 years <laughs> older than he is. Oh, because yeah. he looks like a guy that just got his ass kicked for about 15 years, which is basically what he did. And in this match, Masawa just is starting to look like a guy that's like really tired. He's got the weight of the promotion on him. Uh, you know, he was probably involved in some of the booking decisions. He's the sort of the, the headliner for the promotion. He's carrying the mantle for the promotion. Uh, and he just looks kind of like beaten down a little bit. He's got, by the way, for a guy that was a headliner 
a guy that was a main eventer for years upon years upon years. Did anyone in that position have a worse head of hair than Mitsuhauer himself? <laughs> because <laughs> his hair is like going all kind of, it's starting to recede a little and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of popping up and it's just, it's not looking good. Uh, that's like just neither here nor there with the match though. But they, they spend part of the match uh, and you got two guys that are incredible baby faces and Kobashi is working Masawa's elbow. They're selling it that his elbow had come into the match slightly injured. He's got the wrap on it. And then there's a move where he uh, has Kobashi outside the ring. He does that move. I, I know uh, Mysterio does it. Eddie Guerrero's done it where they go like they're running to the ropes, but then they grab the ropes and flip themselves over so that they're standing outside the ropes on the side of the mat. And then he goes to give Kobashi an elbow. Kobashi moves. He hits the elbow. It's actually a very dangerous looking spot. And he, the, the storyline was he hits the elbow on the gate. And then from there, Kobashi starts to work the elbow. And, you know, I started thinking about it as I was watching this bear. Tell me an example of two baby faces that are great talents in the ring. Uh, two guys that are absolutely top of the card guys that could work a match like this in the United States and still not have uh, interference. Uh, you know, I, I will tell you, like, basically, like the Danielson uh, stuff with Omega. Yeah. yeah if, and, except for Omega had, you know, the, the Bucks around the ring and Don Callis. But if they just did a straight up wrestling match with no interference and allowing the crowd, because what you find in the crowd, and by the way, I'm sure right now somebody's going, oh, I fucking hate Kenny Omega. Um, but the crowd at some point, as Masawa, is making his comeback and is beating on Kobashi, they start the Kobashi chance. And then like literally five minutes later, when Kobashi starts rallying and he's beating on Masawa, the crowd is starting to chant for Masawa. It's absolutely fascinating that you have a cr the same crowd in the same match within a span of like five minutes begin cheering for the, the other guy. It's not uh, the strict baby face versus heel matchup that they are so enamored and I remember going back, I, you know, I mentioned before that, you know, I'm going back and listening to some of our very early episodes. And uh, one of the episodes I was listening to uh, was with our old friend, Eric um, Cholminski. And he said something uh, about a match from Japan that he was at when he would go to the Tokyo Domes uh, shows. And he said, you know, he goes, I was sitting next to this guy and I can't remember what match he was talking about. It was some kind of Okada match. And he said, the match was so good that I looked next to this, it was a Japanese guy, spoke no English, but they're just there as two fans. And they they looked at each other during this match. And Eric said, we both started laughing because what was happening in the ring was so incredible and so awesome. And I bring this up because if you watch during the match, when the match starts at ringside, you got guys that are either uh, in the, they're either mobbed up or they like are the CEOs of Mitsubishi or something like that. Cause they look like these executives are wearing suits and ties. And for the first uh, five to 10 minutes of the match, they're kind of sitting there very stoic, almost like, no, I really don't want to be here, but my corporation's forcing me to attend this match. And they're just like completely ambivalent about the match. But then by the time you get to where there's like five minutes left, and the joint is just going crazy. The crowd is on their feet cheering. And you look at the same guys, and they're laughing their ass off, but not because they're making fun of the match, because they can't believe how fucking great this match is, Bear. 
Yeah, and I think I think you would see that from time to time. But realistically, even if you weren't, I mean, wrestling in Japan has always been different in that it, it, it does receive mainstream uh, publicity and mainstream news without being mocked, as it so often is in our country. So even if you weren't a quote-unquote wrestling fan, those guys in suits still had an idea of who was going to be in the ring that night. Uh yeah, and you're right about uh, about Kobashi, not Kobashi, uh, Kawada as well. Uh, Kawada just looks uh, like he's, yeah, he's already got one foot in there, just looks completely beat up. But I would say this is, this is as close to, when it comes to this style of wrestling, the King's Road style, this is probably as close to perfection for that style as you're going to get. So, Barry, another interesting episode. I hope you will agree. A breaking KV about better than Barry. What do you think, my man? I, yeah, I think the interview with Jacques might be my new favorite interview, Jeff. You almost never say that. No, no. So, Barry, one more time quickly before we go and do the go home. Isn't there something coming up in Lutz, Florida? There is. And you know what? We're going to plug a couple of things right now quickly, Jeff. I will take Lutz. You take the Patreon. Uh, coming up in Lutz, Florida on November the 6th, which really at this stage, I think we're like three weeks away. It is right around the corner. Uh, Jerry Briscoe, the Rock and Roll Express, Jerry Jarrett, Bugsy McGraw, the Grappler, Dirty White Boy, Len Denton. Uh, we've got we've Top got Gun. Top Gun, the Saint, the Cuban Assassin. Uh, they're all going to be there. You, we have sold out of our ultra tickets, but we still have the tickets for the two hour Q and a with the rock and roll express, which is also a catered dinner. Jeff and I were talking about this earlier. I believe Jeff is going to be moderating the two hour dinner with the rock and roll express. So for no other reason, if you haven't bought your tickets, buy your tickets now. So you can see Jeff moderating the Q&A with Ricky and Robert. That's going to be exciting. Jeff, I know you're exciting. And I believe I have heard a special guest will be making their way to Lutz that we haven't seen since the first or second fan fest. He is you... a on the fee is a, but ah, I will okay. tell you as far as the moderating a part of the show goes, Mrs. Sure. Baldrin last night asked me, she goes, Hey, are, are, are you going to be a, yeah, I'm doing my David Letterman voice. Hey, hey, hey are, are, are you going to do the, uh, the moderating? Or the, uh, the big dinner? And I said, I don't know. I haven't been oh, asked. Well, you know, I like the, you know, the attention of being asked. But Barry's asked me now. So, yes, that's true. And I will also mention that the time this show drops, that's your uh, professional uh, broadcasting term there, Bear. Lovely. Uh, our Patreon episode five has dropped. We are talking with Sal Corrente, the biographer of Bruno San Martino. Sal taking some uh, listener questions, but only listeners that have subscribed to our Patreon channel. Five freaking dollars, Barry. Five freaking dollars. Uh, you can ask uh, this guy uh, Bruno San Martino questions. But besides that, as if that's not enough, because Barry, I said it before, I'll say it again. If we are nothing, what are we, Barry? We're givers. We are givers. A second guest joining us and that, of course, is Robin Smith, Rockin' Robin, the uh, daughter of Grizzly Smith, sister of Sam Houston and Jake the Snake Roberts. She will talk to us. And I will say it's a very personal interview, lots of personal details uh, being revealed. Uh, some of the stuff that was talked about on the Dark Side of the Ring episode will be discussed. And because of that, after a very had a conversation with his daughter, the lovely Zoe, uh, Zoe made a suggestion. 
And we all, uh, Barry, myself, and Lou agreed that it was a great idea to have all the proceeds from this particular Patreon episode go to R-A-I-N-N. It's the RAIN. It's Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. We uh, told Robin that we were doing this. She was extremely gracious and said, that's a, a great idea, wonderful idea. So if you think that we both suck, if you have some personal agenda against Lou Kippelman, who has an agenda against Luke stinking Kippelman? Come on, he's scam likely Kippelman. But no, if you hate all three of us, I can understand maybe why you'd, why you'd hate Barry, but that's another story. Sure, I get it. This episode, we are seeing none of the monies. They are all going to this charity to help and support people that are, or women that are victims of rape, incest, uh, you know, uh, and abuse. Why not? This is the perfect opportunity for you to give a little bit of your filthy, hard-earned lucre, five whole dollars, to support this fine charity. And I will tell you this. Barry, lean forward, because I'm going to tell you something. All right, I'm, I'm in. I mentioned this to the great Brian Last, and Brian Last texted me back and said, I'll match it. So, wow. You, yes, that's very good of Brian. It was a very nice gesture on his behalf. If you contribute your $5, it's being matched by Brian Last. You are taking money out of Brian Last's lucrative bankroll at Casa de Last. He lives over uh, uh, overlooking a cliff onto the bay. I don't know. I'm just saying I'm making that up. But he is going to match anything that you contribute to this particular Patreon episode. I think, Barry, that's good stuff. What do you think? I think absolutely, too. And you got to realize this is going to one of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest causes uh, ever. This is, this is, RAIN stands for, uh, Sweet Lou, why don't you join us for this? What is, what does RAIN stand for again? Uh, it stands for uh, Rape and Incest uh, National Network. And that should just tell you everything that you need to know that this money is going to go to help people who truly do need it, who truly do need to to be helped in some form. So we encourage you, as Jeff said, look, if you love us, if you don't love us, it's almost irrelevant. Uh, but by, by subscribing to the Patreon, you will be able to hear this amazing interview that we did with Robin and Sal Corrente, separate interviews, but that your money is going to go to help somebody and make a difference. To me, that, that may be the most gratifying thing of all. And again, it's not like we're asking for 50 bucks. We're asking for $5. If you're listening to this episode in the car and you're fixing to pull into a, a QT or a Raceway or a Wawa or a Starbucks and you're going, ah, I'm going to go get myself a triple mochaccino latte. Ah, maybe, you know what? Maybe instead of getting that drink today, I'll contribute $5 to uh, the good folks there at Breaking KP with Boundary and Barry so they can make this donation on behalf of not only us and not only Brian Last, but of Robin Smith and for everything that she went through. If you saw the dark side of the ring episode, if you listen to this Patreon episode, it's an incredibly, incredibly compelling episode and interview. And she's so brave. And, you know, I have so much respect for her, not just as a wrestler, but for what she went through before she started day one in the wrestling business. So all that being said, Barry, you think it's time for the go home, my friend? This is it. I'm, I'm worn out. This was a hell of an episode. Yes. And Barry says, uh, next time, instead of two matches, can we do like five or six? <laughs> yeah, and I said, please. sure. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I'll send you the link like an hour before the show starts. Thank anyway, you. on that note, I am Jeff Bodman. They call me the booker. Sometimes my co-host is Barry Rose. And our producer is the sweet man, Lou Kippelman. Scam likely. 
And I will tell you that Breaking Kayfabe about Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network.